There's a Portuguese novelist, and I think he was named Salamango or something like that. And he has these great stories, like one where everybody goes blind. It's an epidemic, and the whole country goes blind. And that's kind of what it's like for us. It's like, you know, suddenly we're all mute. We can't even speak. We can't understand what we're saying. It's like we can't speak. And then one by one, we start speaking again. And it's like, my God, what just happened to us? You know, we, we know. And uh, we're able to heal at that point, you know, because we're able to communicate again. Welcome to Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's six-part journey into the struggle for indigenous language survival in California. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. La Mesa, this podcast series is a continuation of Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's award-winning multimedia story, where we explored the current state of four different indigenous California languages and how dedicated families and communities are facing the challenges of revitalizing some of the most vulnerable languages in the world. In 2019, our filmmaking team, led by director Adam Lofton, crisscrossed California, witnessing the language revitalization efforts of Talawa Daini, Kuruk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities. This critical work is more important than ever as the dwindling number of last remaining fluent speakers document and impart their cultural and traditional knowledge to the next generation of language keepers. Originating along the Klamath River in Northern California, the Karak language does not contain the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. Instead, its directions are entirely related to the river. In Karak, there are at least 38 different ways to give directions, all oriented around the Klamath River. For example, upriver from this point on the river, or uphill from that point, or across from this point, the river is considered the center of the Karak world, geographically, culturally, and spiritually. Just as a river is dependent on an unobstructed flow to remain healthy, a language is dependent on the healthy connections and transmissions between generations of speakers. For millennia, this natural inheritance of language was able to flow freely among the Karak, carrying with it the dimensionality of this rich, place-based Klamath River culture. Julian Lang is a Karak artist, language teacher, and leader within the Karak community. He first learned Karak from his grandmother, but in order to continue learning, 
he had to seek out other fluent speakers from an older generation. Many of these elders had survived residential boarding schools and other state and federally mandated cultural suppression. The trauma they experienced often left them unwilling to speak their language. In Julian's pursuit to learn the Karak language, he spent countless hours convincing these elders to impart their knowledge, language, and stories. An important tool when colonializing someone, you know, when really oppressing and destroying a people. If you want to do that, you take away their language. That's pretty much one of the first things that you got to do. Strip them of their language and tell them that their language is now not to be used, only our language is to be used, whatever the dominant language is that they think should be used. You know, that pretty much annihilates that group as a people. So that is uh, the kind of uh, efforts that were brought against us. Fad yaha. Fad yaha. Fad yaha pai. Fad yaha pai. Who did this? It's like you're saying, what's this? And yet somehow there's a semblance, maybe blood, relationships, mutual history, whatever it is, keeps us somewhat intact. But when you start inserting language into that, suddenly people are, their eyes are open. With only a handful of fluent speakers remaining, there is now an absence of this natural language transmission and language survival depends on the critical relationship between elder and student coming together for one-on-one learning. Now, considered a young elder, Julian Lang is bridging an older generation of fluent speakers, alive and deceased, with members of a younger Karak generation. Mothers, like Mamie Donahue, who are learning the language, are taking a step toward restoring the age-old transmission between elder, parent, and child. Wanita um, mitanani afiyev, Wanita. Oh. Um, wala. Mu afiyev? Mu afiyev. Oh, tanekhuti upiti mekta. Ayuki, nanathwaiti mami. Uh, Dennis the Third. Um, my name is Mamie. I'm Karuk and Yurok and Paiute and Pit River. And this is my little baby. He's getting big. Dennis the Third. And uh, I live in Panamnik, Orleans, California. I'm a um, counselor with the Karuk tribe and a Karuk language revitalization activist, speaker, 
and mainly mother, that's the main motivation for me wanting to learn my language, was to have a home where my kids grew up speaking the language. The gift I had of growing up here, the gift I had of having a, a million relatives, it seemed like a burden maybe when I was younger, like, ugh, like made everything, life was so inconvenient where I lived. And when I got older, I appreciated it and I was really grateful. I was lucky enough to go to school here in our ancestral territory where I got a lot of kudu growing up in the schools and with elders. So I, I had a base exposure, but as soon as my kids got a little bit bigger, I was really having to struggle to keep up with them. My language was at the that of a one-year-old and they were one and speaking kaduk fluently and so I had to start to really apply myself to keeping up with the language. Kaduwadapa. <laughs> I became a part of Advocates for Indigenous Language Survival and Julian Lang became my teacher because he saw that I had a passion for it. And in the sacrifices he's made to keep the language alive, I, I really honor that and respect that because there are the handful of people like him that hadn't decided to just put their whole lives on hold and um, be with those elders in those last years of their life, our language would be dead. Ta mu ethweum wanita. My father-in-law remembers going to school upriver and um, he would let slip a little bit of kaduk and they'd say, "Your sounds like you got a mouthful of garbage and the teacher was allowed to hit them when they did that. And so I think the shame of for being native has contributed to the alcoholism and the drug and alcohol. And so speaking your language and feeling proud to speak your language and having a, that cultural identity again, um, I think will really contribute to the healing of the people as well. So it's all part of healing again from that trauma of being removed from, from physically from each other, but also from our culture as well. Although we were very lucky compared to other tribes to not be removed from our land. What do you think it's going to take to revitalize this language? Um, I feel like language revitalization has a lot to do with our cultural revitalization. As a Kodak person, most of us don't own any land. We have tribal housing or none of us can afford to buy the land because of the um, marijuana industry has made the land prices extremely high. And so because of that, not being able to live off the land, most of us have to work for a living getting money. And that takes up a lot of time and effort. There's not a lot of resources for Native people to be able to um, take time to learn their language. And most Native people in our area are more concerned about living day to day than they are about um, the next steps of cultural realization and language. They're just trying to not get their kids taken by CPS and they're just trying to survive the, la the latest drama around drugs and alcohol or the la latest car wreck or the latest murder. Or, and that's a, a harsh reality of 
our modern people too. I love to just, you know, live and do this language. I also want to make sure I feed my children. So I think that's one obstacle. Um, I think that tribes should really invest a lot more into their language. Much like Mamie Donahue, Phil Albers is part of a younger generation contributing to the revitalization of the Kuduk culture and language. Today, he serves as a cultural activities coordinator for the Kuduk tribe, creating programs that support self-sufficiency, sobriety, and integrate Kuduk culture as a foundation of healthy family relationships. While Phil Albers had always wanted to learn the Kuduk language from his grandmother, a survivor of the Indian boarding school system, it wasn't until he was 20 that she finally felt safe enough to share her language with him. Once I found out that I was having my first child, then I decided I had nine months to become a fluent speaker. And I got pretty close. I was considered semi-fluent to fluent in that range within that nine-month period of time. He only knew Kaduk for like the first three years of his life. Then he started going to this Head Start where it was a Yurok school, and they would talk Yurok in English. And the people that worked there, they were awesome staff. They learned Kaduk to help him at a Yurok school that spoke English. <laughs> But it didn't take but maybe a half of that school year for him to figure out, I can't talk in Kuduk to these people. They don't understand me. And he, he had been getting English and hearing it and picked that up super fast from them in that same amount of time so he would know who he could talk to English in and who he could talk to Kuduk in. It took very little time for a three-year-old boy to figure that out. So that, that was really cool, but then also sad at the same time because then that's when it started to fade. In that two-year period of time that I had been learning language, that boy was passing me just by being a kid learning it and wanting to be able to express himself. He was surpassing what I could say. Pretty soon, he'd ask a question, and if I wanted to stay in Kaduk, I had to get the book. Even when I could get on the computer and look on the online dictionary. Hold on. <laughs> Three-year-old boys don't wait around for you to give them answers. <laughs> so, so it started to become hard and inconvenient. And I couldn't learn the things I needed to say fast enough to keep up with what he was learning. So then that's when it started to roll over into English. So that, that's what motivated me in the beginning. And that still motivated me as I still had kids. But then, you know, a lot of things happen in your life. And one of the greatest things for that was um, I started working with Violet Super, Auntie Vi, most people called her. Auntie was basically her name. And where I was living at the time, she literally lived 100 yards up the driveway. That's it. So I could wake up in the morning, go talk to her for 20 minutes before work, and then leave for work. Come back at lunch, talk. Go back to work, come back after dinner time, talk. I could get Kaduk immersion right there. 
that was part of what really propelled my speaking and language learning to the level that it got to that quickly. I also did a lot of work with the Kaduk Dictionary, and I read that thing like two times all the way through. The grammar explanation was not easy to read and understand everything, especially considering that I'm not a linguist, and I just drilled it in my head so that I could just get the exposure and then have the fluent speaker to fill in the rest so that I could recognize, no, that has to morph. When this sound and this sound come next to each other, it changes. Talk to the speaker, oh, turns from a V to a M. Auntie Vi, she was hidden from birth. At birth, she was hidden from the Indian agents. She did not get kidnapped and then sent to boarding school, like my grandma and so many other elders from that time. So she had the language. She, she was a first language speaker. She spoke really well. She retained so much of the language. We, we grew very close over that time. We spent a lot of time working language, hearing stories, talking about just different times, what it was like in life, what it was like for me, what it was like for her. And um, we also shared a lot of the same interests. I mean, she liked to watch like the WWE professional wrestling on TV, and she liked to go dancing. So, so we had a lot of other bonds besides just the language. And um, that worked really well for us. That really created a safety where we could be ourselves with each other. So Vi and I had a great relationship, and um, she was one of the ones that was not afraid to say, um, there's no actual word for that. Well, what do I say? Um, say this. Okay. Auntie, how do you say clean up? We don't know how to say clean up. What do you mean clean up? You mean wash the floor? Well, no. I mean, maybe if that's what needs to be cleaned. Well, that's what you gotta say. But I just wanna say it's time to clean up. Oh, like you wanna pick up the room. Yeah, that could work. Well, you're not gonna actually pick the room up. No, <laughs> and she was the one who would work through that. Well, you can say this, what? Well, what's that actually means? To hide it, okay? Does that work for put it away? Sure, why not? It's what you're doing most of the time. She was one of the ones who would do that, who would branch out there, and she understood the simple fact that language has to evolve as the people evolve. So she didn't get bound by this, oh, Kadooks wouldn't say that. I respect that and I appreciate that. But then I also appreciate, well, they'd say something because they have to because they do it. So that worked out really well working with her. Um, then she tragically died in a house fire. And even though she only lived 100 yards away from me, that weekend I had traveled out of town and I wasn't home. And it was like midnight um, when they called and said, hey, this happened. And, uh, and I just got in and just drove straight there. And it was like one of the hardest things to go through. By that time, she had uh, been in a wheelchair. She couldn't walk anymore. And so, uh, so once the fire started in the house, there was nothing she could do. 
basically happened super fast. And uh, the people said, well, even if you were home, nobody could have done anything. So uh, I'm like, well, that's nice for you to try to make me feel better. <laughs> because I don't. <laughs> I have a lot of guilt. I carried a lot of guilt for that, for being gone for that. And that, like, really hit the brakes on the language. I mean, I, I was barely, barely speaking after that. Um, it just hurt too much. And that put a, a real damper on, uh, on my kids, because all of a sudden I wasn't talking it. Just talk English. And I'd say a little bit here and there, um, but that was it. Having that relationship with her helped open up me to have those relationships with other elders in other places. And I worked with Vinus Smith, Charlie Tom, PJ Ainsworth, and uh, Marge Houston. Th those are some of the speakers that really did a lot for inspiring me and helping me, pushing me to keep, keep learning. Along with my grandma, of course, you know, and so now I'm trying to do that for other people. As language keepers within the Karak community, Phil Albers and Julian Lang host cultural activities that are open to everyone. On a Thursday night, in a tribal community center, a stone's throw from the Klamath River, young and old gather and eat pizza, paint, and share in the cultural traditions of the Karak people. Okay, we have some paintbrushes, but I have a couple of these if you want to try that also. And if you guys want some help, yakapai. Practice on paper. Stencil. Lots of stencils. Yes? The number one design that we have, we call it tatakta, but it's a triangle. And everything is pretty much based on that in some form. And once you start drawing triangles, she'll go, oh my gosh, that is, that's it. The triangle is, is the basis of our whole being. This is our visual vocabulary. That's so cool, Mike. I, I, I have to do stuff like that. My actual profession is a cultural activities coordinator, so I spend my time identifying activities that are not only traditionally relevant, but also culturally relevant. Sometimes that cultural event is a traditional activity like napping arrowheads out of obsidian. Sometimes it's incorporating cultural designs or traditional designs using acrylic paint on a canvas from Walmart. This one here is this one right here, see? Yeah, that means they're going up the hill. One of the things I used to say when I was younger was that uh, I don't know what the answers are, but I am, you know, I used to have a lot of the questions. What do What? What? Yaka. What? Yaka. What do you think? Huti huti. When I was young, it was uh, elders sitting there telling us they were able to give this knowledge to me 
and I worked really hard to understand it and to appreciate it and to also memorize it. Now, young people don't have those elders. So I've got to try to figure out ways to transmit and give what I was given. And it's really nice to see that this younger generation of Native people has awakened and they too are wondering about this thing called traditional knowledge. As you're stepping into this role, what are you looking for out there? What's, what's your plan? Well, I don't really have a plan. The last few years, several things have just occurred. One of them is the Standing Rock event back in North Dakota. A lot of people from this area went. And sure enough, all the people that came back, they were transformed by everything they saw and heard. And uh, suddenly they've gotten really serious about traditional knowledge, about traditional ways, about uh, traditional solutions to the problems that society's kind of provided for us to have to deal with. So um, they're looking for answers. I don't know what the questions are, but I have a lot of the answers, I think. Piedra. <laughs> That's how I start my academic stories. Long, long time ago. Feels like that. When I first came to Orleans, somebody said, hey, do you fight? And I said, yeah. yeah. And he said, I know somebody who wants to fight. I said, okay. He said, here's the name, here's the number. Go over there. And I walked up there. Who are you? First thing I got, who are you? Not I. <laughs> who are you? I said, oh, I'm Phil Albers. Like, oh yeah, yeah, come here, we want to talk to you. We want to fight. Awesome, I fight. We can train together. For a long time, Native Americans, specifically in this area, were really into boxing. They were very good. They had all Native American leads, and, and they were highly competitive Golden Glove competitors at a young age, and then even professional level as they grew older. One of my very close relations, we call them Junior Albers, he was a Golden Gloves boxer, but he also made the U.S. Olympic team in the 80s when the United States were gonna to go to the Olympic Games in Russia. And he didn't actually go because they boycotted those Olympic Games. Fighting existed in a cultural context for thousands of years. That stems from a traditional stick game, similar to lacrosse. Pick ship fighters, that's um, one of the things that I'm very passionate about. And it's kind of been less on the fighter's emphasis, but more of the pick ship, teamship camaraderie. That kind of started out of a dive into mixed martial arts. Okay, get that leg out, first thing. Drive your right knee through. Nope. Your right knee, drive it through. Gotcha. And that. Uh, you're gonna do it quickly. It's better, yep, keep going. You don't like to tie up, then you gotta move. So for pick ship fighters, um, it's not just about MMA. It's about athleticism, about sports. Understanding balance, understanding leverage, understanding strength, understanding endurance. 
those concepts apply so much deeper than just the fight, than just wrestling, than just boxing. We're trying to teach them some of these cultural aspects of survival in today's society. So go ahead and get that. Ian gets pretty deep and he's right here. You're getting your leg down and he's still going. I forget to push it. You gotta get that head down, and you could even do this. The concept of knowing how to survive and exist as a community was beyond a tribe, beyond a region, beyond a language. There you go. That concept was lived out in that appreciation, understanding, that respect, and that uh, expectation for the others to do the same. None of it will ever work if you stop. If your feet stop, I would like them to understand that they have the choice. That it is an acceptable choice to explore who they are. To explore how they can best express themselves in the environment they live in. With the people that they live with. That they survive with. And for the ones that are Kaduk, or that are from this land, it may be easier to do it the way that it's been done for thousands of thousands of years. So maybe start there. I can help you a little bit with that. But never to force it. <laughs> I don't require my kids to speak Kadok language. Or when I have a class, I don't make them go to it. But but that's the point, you know, for these young kids, there's a choice. And and there are people, there are ones out here that can help you with these choices without having to tell you what to do or judge you for what choice you're making. Let's play charades. Yeah. Um. Boo -fitch. Boo -fitch. Uh. That's kind of what I'm really pushing for the young kids, whether it's through pickship or through my cultural activities or through my language lessons uh, or simply through knowing who I am. Wait, you me enough. That's something I want my kids to understand and then reinforce with themselves and then their friends and family that they learn to survive with. Because it won't always be me. Ishkaki. Yeah, Asish. The most primitive. Language Keepers is produced in partnership with Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. You can experience video introductions and accompanied biographies of the voices you hear at languagekeepers.us. Acknowledging the original indigenous inhabitants of the land you live on is a key step towards healing the legacy of colonization. You can do this by visiting native-land.ca or downloading the Native Land app developed by Native Land Digital. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Adam Lofton. It's produced and narrated by Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger and H. Scott Salinas.
Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix and design is by D. Chris Smith. Sound recording is by Ben Solitiano, with additional production support from Devin Talaton. Language Keepers would not have been possible without the collaboration and support of the Talawadeni, Karuk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities featured in this podcast. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapea Foundation. Our original essays, films, in-depth interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.